So there is evidence being available today that has never been available before. What's amazing to me is we can identify tiny fragments as the New Testament. We know the text of the New Testament that well, that we have a little fragments that are this big, and I'm not exaggerating, this big. We can tell you what verses they are. Textual absolutists will paint these two streams and say, those manuscripts were rejected and not used by the church. You're saying these manuscripts actually show evidence of continuous use by a worshiping community. It's because we believe in the Bible as God's word that it's worth somebody dedicating his life, somebody dedicating his life to what otherwise would be inexcusable minutiae. You are listening to the Textual Confidence Collective. In our discussions up to this point, you know, we started out setting up a framework of textual uh, skepticism, a textual absolutism uh, that seeks to respond to textual skepticism, and then textual confidence that is, Mark has pointed out, is the third view and is the right view. Um, and so we've been working with this framework and, and we told our stories and sort of told where we were headed. And then in our second episode, we, we talked about the, the history of textual absolutism. So we, we really dug into this textual absolutist viewpoint. Uh, and then uh, in the third episode, we talked about the theology of textual absolutism, uh, and we talked about, uh, you know, specifically dealing with the, the uh, text, you know, textual support that it claims from particular passages. Uh, and then we, we talked about the, the uh, support it claims from history, and, and basically uh, tried to come to a better view, an understanding of preservation, of looking to what, um, affirming everything that God says in his word, and also looking and affirming everything God says in his world, and holding those two together rather than trying to separate it. And then we, we took a, a, you know, zoomed in on the, the, T, the story of the TR, how the TR came to be, um, and corrected some misunderstandings about that, and the story of the King James and how the King James came to be, and corrected some misunderstandings of that, and really showed how this idea of textual confidence that we came to at the end of session three really is where, that's the stream, that's the trajectory that we'd see in Erasmus, that we'd see in the King James translators. And so the idea is, you know, I think... Um, Tim, you had a quote from Erasmus. I was thinking of saving it for later, but I really feel like it sums up uh, where we've come up to for this point. I just wanted you to read that before we get into what we're talking about in this episode. Yeah, thank you, Peter. I think you're exactly right um, as you're going to talk eventually about this trajectory of textual uh, confidence. I think from a text-critical perspective, we can say that that began with Erasmus. That trajectory actually started with Erasmus, who, as we've said, was doing textual criticism and was, more importantly, rejecting the fundamental presupposition of textual absolutism. This idea that if there's textual uncertainty, then scripture loses its authority. And he was also very, very open about the fact that textual variation not only was real, but that working as textual critics to better, to have a purer form of the text was a work of piety. So he responds to his critics in the second edition of his text, the 1519 text, with a uh, the chief points in the arguments against some crabby and ignorant critics. And it's a long collection of 100 plus capitum or little arguments. And I want to just read from one of his capitum as he's uh, responding to textual absolutism in his day and just notice how he rejects that core presuppositional thought. He says, and so to put the case in a nutshell, in opposition to those who condemn the whole enterprise, remember his enterprise is revising the Vulgate. He's also therefore creating a Greek text and in five editions, revising that text. So uh, those that condemn the whole enterprise, and this, by the way, is from his 1535 edition, so he's looking back at it all. People have been fighting against him, and here's his answer. I have shown, he says, against them, that it is and always will be a work of piety 
to clear away errors from manuscripts of sacred scripture or to illuminate them in some way, and that whatever anyone contributes to this in his own measure is pleasing to the Holy Spirit. He says, do this work of textual criticism, keep it going, it pleases the Spirit. And then he says this, if someone argues that the authority of Scripture is endangered by, by this enterprise, I have demonstrated that this effort does not destroy it, but rather preserves it. And I think that's such a great quote, because what we're going to talk about in this episode and the next episode is what is this enterprise that Erasmus says is a work of piety? We recognize not everyone is called to this particular work of piety. Not everyone can pray eight hours a day. Not everyone uh, can evangelize for eight hours a day. Not everyone can read the Bible for eight hours a day. If you tried all three of those, you would never sleep, and that wouldn't be very pious, right? So that God calls different ones of us to do different things and to, to labor in, in different areas of his vineyard. But this is an area that some are called to labor in. But even if this isn't what God's called you to do, we want to give you a sense of what labor is there to be done, what labor has been done, and where are we at today. So we're going to start out by talking about the materials and methods of textual confidence. What's, what's it look like? What are we toiling on? And so I think the, the first place to start is what is a manuscript? We've talked a lot about manuscripts. Elijah, why don't you tell us what a manuscript is? What is this thing called a manuscript? I mean, at its core, the word just means written by hand, right? When we talk about manuscripts of the New Testament, we're usually talking about Greek manuscripts. The New Testament is originally written in Greek. Um, it does exist in Latin and Coptic and Syriac and all kinds of other languages in translation um, because the Bible was translated back then as well. Uh, but because the New Testament is written in Greek, we usually are talking about Greek New Testament manuscripts. And those are man copies of the New Testament. Um, not all of them are complete New Testaments. In fact, it's, a, it's about one in a hundred are complete New Testaments. And if you think complete Bible, where they have the Greek Old Testament as well, it's even fewer. I think there's only about 10. And there's, yeah. it's, uh, Parker says there's 61 Greek manuscripts that right. contain or once contained the whole the whole New Testament. Right. And this is an important part of your myths and mistakes in New Testament textual criticism. You're wanting Christian apologists like a Josh McDowell to not overstate the case of how much we still have. We right. still have a lot. It's really great. We just don't want to overstate it. Well, I mean, and there, one of the questions is how many do we have? Well, there is an official list. There's a, a group in Germany that maintains the list. And a lot of people just, and this is the most reasonable thing. I've done it before. You go to the list, you add up, it's in four categories, which we can explain later, papyri, majuscules, minuscules, and lectionaries. You add up the number for each of those, and that's how many manuscripts we have. Well, it's not that simple um, because sometimes we find out that we have two or more manuscripts that we once thought were different manuscripts. And over time, we've been able to piece them together and see these are actually the same thing. There's one manuscript in particular, uh, I think it has 10 different numbers because it was torn up and sold off piece by piece. And this was long enough ago when people weren't comparing them. And so they didn't know they, they were actually all the same one. So it, was, you know, it has 10 numbers, but that's not 10 manuscripts. That's one manuscript. You also have the problem of uh, manuscripts being destroyed. Um, so, and, and there's a, one question you deal with that. There is uh, one of the manuscripts that I wrote my, my PhD thesis on. One page of it um, was supposed to be in one city. I contacted them. They said, we haven't seen it in decades. Um, but there's a picture of it. It's a black and white picture, 
So does that leaf exist or not? I mean, there's not an easy answer to that. We can get the text from the black and white picture, but we can't examine the thing itself. So yes, in a sense, that page still exists, but in another sense, it is lost. And I think, you know, one, one distinction is that usually the manuscripts are only counted that are from prior to the the uh, advent of printing. Yeah, advent of printing. No, no, they're they're counted of something like six hundred New Testament manuscripts post date the printing press. Okay. And so one one of the issues you have to face is is this manuscript a copy of the Textus right. Receptus? There are, and so and another another question you might have is what if you have a manuscript where it has the Gospels. And that's, you know, a Byzantine text, but then it's got maybe Revelation that's copied from a Texas Receptus. Like, how do you count that? Uh, we wouldn't count the Revelation but as a, a manuscript on its own, but we would count the gospel bits. Uh, so there's a lot of ambiguities, you know. And there's so many crazy things on the list. Like, yeah. there's one manuscript on the list where Chrysostom has Chrysostom's homilies on Romans and his commentary on Galatians. The commentary on Galatians gets counted as a New Testament manuscript and the homilies on Romans don't get counted, even though it's the same manuscript. Yeah, oh, I want to say there's one, and I can't remember the number, but the uh, initial sort of discussion about it, and this is, to this day, all we know about the manuscript is basically, this is basically the story, but uh, yeah, some dude in a trench coat showed it to Gregory in an alley in New York once. And like, I mean, that's... <laughs> And they got a number? It's a little exaggeration, but it, like it, the <laughs> real story is not much different than that. Like, we have no idea what the text was other than, I think, Gospels. We know nothing about this. We don't know who it was that showed it to him. Peter Ruckman. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> no, the Gregory would have been... Well, maybe. Maybe a very young Peter Ruckman. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Now, so what strikes me about all this is when I was in a textual absolutist circle of otherwise excellent Christians who shaped me well and I'm grateful for, we definitely would have had a view of anybody involved in textual criticism that was very a very negative view. And we also would have thought they're, they're shadowy, they're elusive. Um, the work that they're doing, they have to keep it behind closed doors so that they're not discovered. Actually, they got a whole big website where they're trying to make all this information yeah. available to the entire world. And, and that's actually one of the points of a lot of critical, big critical editions, is you have the huge text apparatuses at the bottom that tell you the different readings in different manuscripts. And that is, in a sense, to be transparent, to show exactly. anybody yep. who wants to, yep. to know you can go and look these up and see what different manuscripts say. And so there's, you know, basically, you know, the idea is we can't count the manuscripts precisely because there's a certain degree of ambiguity of even how many manuscripts there are for the reason specified. But we do have certain main categories of Greek manuscripts that would be continuous text manuscripts. You have papyri. Which are possibly not all continuous text manuscripts. That's true. And there's some debate on that because these, a lot of these are so fragmentary. Right. Oh, yeah. We can't completely be sure you know if it's if it's a little passage of just a couple of verses what's amazing to me is we can identify tiny fragments as the new testament we know the text of the new testament that well that we have a little fragments that are this big and i'm not exaggerating this yeah, mm -hmm. big we can tell you what verses they are that's an unbelievable and that uh, points to the overall macro stability of the right, new testament right. text but there's also the question of could this be a church father quoting that verse? Yes. 
in in a work that we just don't know well enough to to tell. So with the, with the papyri, uh, some you do have to be careful with how you deal with them. Those are the oldest, and they're written on the papyrus. most ancient. I mean, it's still used. Papyrus is still used today, but for art and stuff. Right. That, but that was the common medium for writing from. And those are, those are the earliest, and there's there's really only you know the papyri are the hardest to count because the fragmentary issue applies you know in spades to them. Right. Um, but you know you could say probably would you say maybe around a hundred or so. Yeah, Somewhere. surely. I mean, there are a hundred. Mm, I think we're up to one, maybe one forty-one now on the official list of papyri. But, but yes, but there's questions like P sixty-four and sixty-seven. Everybody acknowledges that's the same manuscript. Some people add P four as well and say P four is also part of that same manuscript. Did the font papyrus come from that era? Uh, I'm sure it did. I reject no, that no. font entirely. Um, but you know, you could say you have roughly around a hundred or so. Right. And and those are the earliest and there's but only a handful of those are substantial portions. Right. right. And the ones that are substantial portions are the ones that we can sort of do the most with. Right. And I, this is an issue that has come up with me working uh, with Dirk Yonkin on the Tyndale House Greek New Testament. Uh, there are some issues I remember having discussions with him. It about looks like you actually read that thing. I'm sorry. It looks like you actually sit down and read the yeah, Greek I've, New Testament. I've, That's I've, great. I've, this is my Carry Bible. Like I, that's that's the one that I take to church with. Textual critics actually read the Bible. <laughs> oh right, yeah. Well, okay, Derek Yonkin reads it in Hebrew. Just establish. I'm, you know, I've forgotten all my Hebrew from seminary, so I'm a I'm a bad Christian, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, sometimes a papyrus is so small that we can't really tell what its tendencies are. There's ways yeah. to judge a manuscript's tendencies, and I mean, there are some that are so small that there's really no textual variant included in them, right? Half a dozen or so? Uh, I haven't looked that much into it. I do know that there's one, and it has a, one, a missing verse that's only in one or two other manuscripts, but it happens to be the earliest manuscript of that verse ever, and almost everybody just rejects it because that verse is so weakly attested um, and the ma manuscript itself is not big enough for us to be able to tell what its tendencies are. The, one of the other manuscripts that supports that reading is not a trustworthy manuscript by almost anybody's definition. Uh, and so it was kind of ironic. It's, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, your Bible could change at the next discovery. Well, well, no, um, no, because that's the earliest manuscript, and we, we still reject the reading because... We have other grounds of, of having certainty there. So you have papyri, and those are those are labeled based on the writing surface. Right, yeah. Written on papyri. So that there's a little bit of weirdness and arbitrariness to the way manuscripts are counted if you're picking up on that. Right. And, and the problem is, like, these lists are made, you know, it goes, it's the Gregory Alon list. So Gregory is turn of the 20th century, and... Uh, Kurt, Kurt Alon... Um, Takes it well. There were some people in between too. Yeah, and, and Alond is is you know begins you know he's in the sixties, seventies, eighties. When do you know when he passed away? Nine in the nineties, I believe. Nineties, and, and and then I, Barbara Alond is. I think Barbara Alond is still alive, right? She's still alive, but Greg Paulson is now over the list. So you have a lot of people involved right. in a lot of changes in technology and ideas, but you don't want to make it inaccessible to people who you know everything is referencing this list. So the ability to change it is difficult. Right. Um, so you can't just start fresh every twenty years. Right. Uh, and so. You've got a lot of ambiguity. So the papyri, though, they're based on the writing surface. And right. then you have two other main classes of manuscripts, majuscule manuscripts and minuscule manuscripts. And those ones are based on the style of uh, handwriting. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the, the, the paleography there, what paleography is and how that's used to categorize manuscripts? Yeah, paleography is um, 
dating of a hand of a hand of a document based on the handwriting. And we can still do that. You know, our grandparents had noticeably different handwritings than we have. Uh, so the concept of that um, carries. Uh, a lot of times I think people are more specific than we can be for paleography because it, it really hinges on us having a manuscript with a date on it that we can say this handwriting matches up to this date. And Which so, for minuscule manuscripts, we often do because we right. have a lot more complete ones that have the colophons that have the dates. So that's a little bit easier. Right. The earlier period, because they're fragmentary, it's the end that gets lost. So we have a lot fewer dated. Right. You know. Even that dating, though, just puts you within the lifetime of the scribe that produces that handwriting, right? There's still a range. Right, it's still a range. Right. Right. And, and there's also archaizing handwriting where right. someone intentionally mimics an older style. And there are, are ways of telling that is happening. I'm not good at those, but that happens a lot in the minuscule era. Is, uh, mm. you have it was like a whole class of manuscripts that was thought to be much older that got redated based on the discovery of an archaizing. Like, there's right. a, but there's, it's just crazy how much work has been done. Right. It, mostly in non-English, unfortunately for us. Much of it is, yes. Uh, but there's so many French and Italian scholars that have just given their whole lives to studying this sort of thing. Oh, and German as well. Yeah. Um, right, yeah. Um, so that there's majuscule, which is, think of it as all capitals, all capital letters. Um, uh, the letters are separate, and they're each written individually and there's different styles so there's straight there's upright that's big block and wide letters there's upright that's certain letters are skinny there's ones that everything slopes um there's a particular era towards the end where where everything's transitioning to minuscule where it's honestly really it's almost hard to tell if it's majuscule or minuscule because they're so close in style and even, yeah, so some of the manuscripts I work with for Chrysostom, they'll try to use the majuscule sometimes for the biblical text, and sometimes they mix it up. And so you'll see, like, they don't fully transition the one to the other, so they'll have, like, majuscule letters with the minuscule letters or vice versa. Right. And it, it uh, gets to be a little interesting. Yeah, and the question there is, like, what? how do you classify that one? Right, like, yeah. Which one is it? Uh, minuscule is uh, it's sort of a cursive. It's a quicker way of writing. Uh, it probably developed, I think, the latest research is maybe in the 8th century. The earliest dated examples we have are from the 9th century. Um, but it looks like it probably developed a little before then. Uh, but it just explodes onto the scene in the 9th century. Mm -hmm. uh, you see it just... It, shows up everywhere. Um, and that's most manuscripts. The average New Testament manuscript, if you go out and find one, is written in a majuscule, or minuscule, rather, handwriting. And the older ones are going to be written in that majuscule. Right. We only have a few hundred majuscule manuscripts, and it, most of those are, frag. you know, there's there's many that are fragmentary. Right. And so, you know, when, when people talk about why are text critics obsessed with these, you know, four old majuscule manuscripts, well, because they really stand out. It's not like they're picking these four against hundreds of other complete majuscule New Testament manuscripts that all mm. agree exactly with the TR. No, these are old, relatively complete New Testament manuscripts and that are astonishingly rare to have anything like that. Yeah. Which and, was and rare today, but is, was especially rare when they first impacted textual criticism. Right, right. yeah. And, and, you, and what's neat to me is you see signs of use in them. Like you have 
uh, re-inkings or the ink is faded and someone has gone right. back to re-ink them. You have notes written in the margin, which themselves can be dated paleog mm -hmm. paleographically. Like, uh, you know, these manuscripts weren't just made and then put on the shelf and forgotten about. They were brought out and used uh, for centuries. You know, so the idea that they just were all found in a garbage can because no one used them and those were the ones that got thrown away is just not true. Right. You know, there's a continuous use of, say, Vaticanus that is longer than the entire history of the King James. Like, not just this text, but this actual physical right. artifact yeah, and, has right. been in continuous fact, use. There's, a, there's, I believe, a one of the ten... Um, full Greek, Appendix. Old, and New Testaments. It's a later minuscule from the 1500s, I believe, and uh, some of the Septuagint research has has said, and I'm not a Septuagint person, so I don't want to, you know, I wouldn't bet my life on it, but they've said, like, there are parts of the Old Testament that were copied from Codex Vaticanus. Like, even in the 1500s, it was still being used in some parts mm. as an example. Which is over a thousand years later. Right. So just to come back to something that was earlier mentioned, as we talk about these two streams, a lot of times textual absolutists will paint these two streams and say those manuscripts were rejected and not right. used by the church. You're saying these manuscripts actually show evidence of continuous use by a worshiping exactly. community. And it's not just those manuscripts, but you know we mentioned one of the earlier episodes, manuscript 1739, which is written. It's 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 one of the most Alexandrian manuscripts of Paul that we have, and it comes from right in the heart of Byzantium in Constantinople in the 10th century. And the same scribe also wrote uh, uh, a manuscript called 1582, I believe, and its uh, sibling manuscript was one that Erasmus used. It was manuscript one. These oh, really? two were probably manuscript copied one? from the same exemplar. Hmm. Um, so it was, it was fascinating to see how, you know, once you start looking into more than just the text, you look into the colophons and you see mm -hmm. names of people. And it's one of the things that I, I like to do is mention, you know, this uh, Emmanuel who wrote this manuscript or Sabas who wrote this manuscript. John Zutzunas who wrote 104 that I'm going to be talking about at my paper at uh, the CSNTM conference. All right, yeah. Uh, there's also one more category that we haven't really talked about, and that's lectionaries. So um, I think we're gonna get we're gonna get into that. Like I so, you know, so you, we've got the you know sort of at least ostensibly continuous text manuscript with the papyri we don't always know. So we've got you know about a hundred or so papyri, and we've got uh, well three hundred to two fifty to three hundred somewhere. Majuscule, about a hundred papyri. Yeah, we've got a few hundred. We could say you know, it's, it's best to give round numbers. Right. And then you know the minuscule manuscripts we've got a few thousand. A couple thousand. Yeah. But then we've got a whole lot of other things. Right. Right. That are not continuous text manuscripts, and of course one of the more one of the more important of those are. Uh, the, as you mentioned, the lectionary. So what's a lectionary? A lectionary is kind of like a one-year Bible. If you pick up at the bookshop, it it has the text, but it's not uh, Matthew through Revelation. It's on these, you know, here's Easter, and these Sundays after Easter, read these passages. Or And sometimes it's just Saturdays and Sundays. Sometimes it's every day of the week. Um, these are the least studied, uh, I think, because nobody wants to deal with them. Maybe they're they're difficult because they're often very liturgical, um, and you have to really get into not just church history, but sort of Greek Orthodox theology to make sense of what's going on. Because you have feast days for saints and things like that. And and so they're arranged, you know, not not so the people could read through the Bible in a year, but they're arranged for liturgical reading in church. That there's right. a particular pattern. There's set patterns 
that the Bible's read in, right. um, that sometimes we'll go sequentially through books, but it'll pair like a particular feast day. We'll have, you know, a reading that's from the Gospels and a reading that's from Paul or whatever. And, and right. so that'll be paired. And so the lectionaries are arranged in that way. So when you hear like there's 5,000 something New Testament manuscripts, that includes a few thousand lectionaries. Right. Yeah, I think I want to say there are more lectionaries than anything. Which makes sense because right. this is the that's what was used Bible in church. Read in church, yeah, exactly. And of course, there are some New Testament manuscripts that have the markings for being read as lectionaries, even though they're continuous text. They're like marked for use right. as lectionaries. I want to say Codex Bizet, which is one of the you know weirdest manuscripts that we have, has I think it has lectionary markings. Well, so. there's even and this. This gets to be this. This would take us a field if we went into too much detail. But there are you know Chrysostom's homilies. There's a few of those manuscripts that are marked with lectionary markings that it's just being read as a text of Romans, <laughs> presumably in a church context. Maybe they didn't have access. Maybe it was, you know, because you have the, you have all the Turkish invasions, you know, that are coming in. And so you're, you're, you're living in very difficult battle-torn areas sometimes, but you're still trying to read the Bible in church. Or you're using whatever you have that's available to you. Uh, and so sometimes commentaries are getting pressed in as biblical texts. Um, and that way it gets some interesting, gets to be some interesting things. But we have these, these manuscripts that all get counted on the lista, um, but we have other stuff that's not on the lista. So what are some of, some of those things? Yeah, so the manuscripts that are um, of other languages, early translations, uh, some of those get counted on their respective lists. Um, I don't think all of them have official lists, but those are items of interest in textual criticism. We do want to know how the Bible was translated early on because in some cases, not always, but in some cases, we can tell what Greek text somebody was translating mm -hmm. from, and that gives us some information. But also there's a lot of fun, uh, well, there's quotations from the church fathers. So, you know, you that's mentioned what, That's what I'm doing my dissertation on. Um, there's also like all the really fun little stuff that doesn't fit in anywhere, um, which I, you know, I kind of laugh because there's nothing new under the sun. And I remember uh, my grandma used to have this Psalm 23 hanging on her wall. And, you know, you find stuff like that. There's, there's a tablet. And, and what's great about this one is uh, we can, it's a clay tablet. We know where it was dug up. It was dug up in Greece. Um, and it was probably made to hang on the wall of a home, uh, and it's from the fourth century, but it's of the Lord's Prayer, and it doesn't have the doxology at the end. Well, that tells us, it, it, for whatever reason, maybe they chose not to include it, but there was a form of the Lord's Prayer that hung on somebody's wall in the 300s. It didn't have for thine is the power and the glory and the dominion right. forever. Right. And, and, and that's significant because that's older than almost all of our New Testament Greek manuscripts other than just that, you know, the handful. Right. And, and so to, to have that is really significant. I want to circle back to the ancient translations. I, I think we mentioned this by, by the by, but, you know, there's lots of ancient translations. The three that are usually used by text critics are going to be Latin and Syriac and Coptic are the most used for sure. Right. Um, and, and those are those are all three coming directly from Greek, because you do have the problem of in some in some cases, you have a language that comes through something that's not Greek, mm. you know, similar to English Bibles being translated from the Vulgate. Uh, you can have uh, right. I want to say Armenian may have come through Syriac. Am I remembering that right? At one point, that was on the table. It may not be anymore. 
but then you also have the question of was it revised towards the Greek? You know, right. it, it gets really messy when you look at old translations and how they were being done. And I think one of the things, just just one thing to throw out there is, you know, we talked about those two streams. So something like the old Latin version, you know, so I was told, well, the old Latin, you know, version was one of the things I was told at some point. The old Latin version is older than Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and the old Latin version, it supports the King James. Well, anyone who's, you know, so my supervisor is a specialist on the old Latin, and to say the old Latin version would probably be enough to make any old Latin specialist roll their, you know, have their <laughs> eyes roll to the back of their head, right. because the old Latin is actually like, there's a whole spectrum Diversity. of old Latin translations, and the one thing they have in common is all of them are very imprecise and hard to tell what Greek readings they support. Yeah, right. um, oh, which Augustine editions. complains about that, right? There's, there's yeah. diversity of Latin translations everywhere. In, in the critical editions of the old Latin texts, there's critical editions, and usually with a critical edition, you have one text. Mm. One, in the old Latin, there's several lines, right. you know, like Cyprian's text said this, the, the Vulgate is usually thrown in there as well. You can have uh, other forms of old Latin texts. And so there's multiple lines where they're... So the, the old Latin, you know, so if you're a textual absolutist, the old Latin is the least defined, te- like it would be difficult to have a form of the text that exhibited more diversity. Uh, so it's not just one thing. Right. It's, it's a spectrum of things. Am I right in saying you specialists that the versions help us most when it comes to larger chunks. So John right. seven fifty three to eight eleven, the woman caught in adultery. First John yes. five seven is maybe not quite big enough a chunk, but uh, the ending of Mark, right. uh, whatever you want to call it, the longer ending. Um, if if that's present or not, you can tell readily. Right. right. Whereas on an individual for an individual reading, it might not be possible to know whether you're looking at a translator's decision. Right. or add a textual difference. I can't remember the specifics, but uh, there's a couple of books that are on translation philosophy. One is by Pete Williams, who we mentioned before, and it's on Syriac translation philosophy. And uh, I've, one, of the, one of the things that he says, I think, is when you have uh, two nouns like this and that, uh, it's, a, it's a translational feature that those can swap out. So in Greek, if we see that, we'd say, oh, that's a textual variant. They're swapping the order. Christ Jesus but, versus Jesus Christ. Right. Um, something like that. It may just be that that's how the translator translated, and that's not reflecting a Greek underlying a difference. And, and there's some evidence, actually, and this, this uh, would, that, and this is debated in text criticism, but there's some evidence that at some points the Latin translation or particular versions of the old Latin came to be the Bible for people, and that even Greek manuscripts were at some points, this is not the norm, but there were points at which even a Greek manuscript might be revised according to a Latin translation. Oh, yeah, no, and that, that we can see that happening in a couple of manuscripts that um, have the comma Johannium. They're, they're, one of them is a Greek and Latin manuscript, um, and if I remember right, there's a reading just before the part that everybody cares about in First John 5, 7, and 8, where there's a, a Latin bit, and the Greek, if I remember right, follows the Latin bit there, not the rest of the Greek manuscripts. If people's heads are already swimming, you know, part of our job is to try <laughs> to make this as accessible as possible, but it's kind of okay if you're a little bit lost on some of the details because there are so many. And what I want to bring us back to even right now while we're in the midst of this, and we're going to have more discussion about all this stuff. We got the experts here. We brought them to Dallas, so we're not going to waste their time. We want them to teach us. Um, I want to go back to what you said, Elijah, uh, quoting Dirk Yonkend, that um, it's worth staying up at night over, I don't know, what did he say, the spelling? Every single letter. Every single letter. I mean, 
it's because we believe in the Bible as God's word that it's worth somebody dedicating his life, somebody dedicating his life to what otherwise would be inexcusable minutiae. Well, and I'll give you an example of that. Um, a, when I was working with him, we were working on a textual commentary for the Tindah Greek New Testament, which is just a book that's going to explain choices that were made. And we came to uh, the the word legion. Now, in Greek, legion can be spelled a couple of different ways. It can be spelled with the Greek equivalent of an I or the Greek equivalent of an E. Um, you translate it the same no matter what. Like, there's a sense in which it does not matter how that word is spelled, but it's still God's word. And there was still an original that had a spelling. And so I, we spent a couple of days going through evidence, and one of the things that we did was we looked at a database of documentary papyri, which are receipts and things like that that have dates, uh, just to look at culturally in the centuries around the New Testament, how was this word typically spelled? And uh, we found that in the early centuries, it was more often spelled one way than the other, but not always. And then by the fourth or so century, it flips, and it's more often spelled one way than the other. And that turns out that matches the Greek manuscripts that we have. And so we adopted that reading. We, we still say that we weren't sure about it. Um, can't dogmatically say it was spelled one way or the other, but it was worth that time because this is God's word, even though that's not something that in any translation would be reflected. And I, I think, I think word. kind of the big picture, like, especially if, if you're, if you're head, if you're listening to this, you're watching this, you're head spitting on some of the details. I think the big picture that we want you to walk away from this is, is that we want, we love the plowboy, but we also love, we also think expertise matters and scholarship matters. And that, both of those, those aren't like, you don't have to pick. We actually want both of them because often when you're, when you're chasing down, I've, you know, in my own research, I've seen this. And I know you've seen this. You chase down something that, you know, Pete Williams says there's, there's no road that's, I forget how he words it, but like any research question, there, there are very few research questions that won't lead somewhere interesting if you push it far enough. That if you keep going down that, you can actually discover really substantive and interesting things uh, if you just keep asking questions until you get an answer. Uh, and that, so both a giving the Bible to the plowboy and having a genuine curiosity about every detail of God's word, knowing that, you know, as the, um, uh, I think it was John Robinson, the, the pilgrim's pastor, you know, we are persuaded that God has more light to shed forth out of his word. And we're persuaded as, you know, textual scholars or aspiring, you know, I'm still in my PhD program, but, you know, that there's more light to shed on God's word as well as out of God's word. Um, and so, you know, here's some of the evidence, just given a brief overview and, and try to give a sense that, you know, expertise is needed to work with this evidence because it is complicated. And so if you've never looked at a Greek manuscript, if you can't read a Greek manuscript, then you Maybe probably you shouldn't should. dogmatize peremptorily. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and so I've noticed Boy, that sounds this, like something I've um, heard someone smart say. <laughs> I've, and I have noticed this, um, and it, the, this is sort of, my unfinished thoughts. So take that for what I would like to see more research done into this, and I don't have time to do it myself. Preface the comments. Um, in the 1500s, when we see people talking about bibliology, they seem to uh, have an appreciation for manuscripts and variants mm -hmm. that happen in manuscripts. Mm -hmm. 
in the 1600s with uh, people like John Owen, right? Am I getting the dates right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have very, it's a, a much more dogmatic um, statements that right. don't allow for variations in manuscripts. And I can't help but wonder, is that because by the 1600s, they're dealing with print editions. They're not dealing with manuscripts anymore. But, yeah. you know, people like Calvin and Erasmus and Luther were. They had right. to understand how hand copying I, works. I think there's, C.S. Lewis talked about chronological snobbery and our tendency to look back. There, there's a certain type of, and we mentioned this earlier, Peter, a sort of technological chronological snobbery that makes us think that now that we have a certain form of technology, what we've done surely is so much better than what everyone else has done before. And we see that the way we handle an iPad today uh, or, or, you know, downloading a podcast as opposed to what was in the past. It's very natural that in a print culture, that kind of attitude would have looked back upon handwriting manuscripts the same way to just assume now that we're in it, because I think that's part of why the TR congeals. I think you're exactly right. There's this chronological snobbery of technology that looks back and says, well, come on, we're in the age of printing. I mean, this is the 17th century for Pete's sake. Well, uh, well, I think it's kind of like, you know, when you read someone like John Owen or Turretin, you know, who in a certain strand of, you know, confessional bibliology or what, as it would be called, are very, very significant writers. Um, it's almost like when Owen talks about textual variants, he's like a teenager today who picks up a book and tries to scroll it. You know, that he talks pretty breezily about the agreement of all the manuscripts. But if you've actually worked with manuscripts, the agreement of all the manuscripts is not what you would talk about. Um, and so, you know, he's a brilliant, and I, I just want to say, like, devotionally, I've had a huge benefit from someone like Owen. He's a brilliant theologian. Um, you know, but as I said, even Homer nods. Um, and you know, manuscripts are just not something that apparently Owen has really given a lot of attention to. And so we're going to get into this in the next session. We want to, we want to learn about manuscripts from people who have studied manuscripts. Just like, you know, I want to learn about uh, some, some aspects of theology from someone like Owen who really gave his life to that. But no one can be an expert at everything. Um, and the complexity of the data that we just talked about means that not everyone's going to, you know, there's a reason why people know maybe about majuscules and fewer are specialists on lectionaries just because there's so much to know about lectionaries or majuscules or whatever. Um, so you end up having to pick something to, to know about. But what are we supposed to do with all this? Well, I was going to say, you haven't even exhausted all the complexity because we haven't talked about patristic citations. Oh, so that's kind of what, that's, that's actually what I'm, I'm doing, just to give a, a little bit about what I'm doing. I'm working with um, Chrysostom's homilies on Romans, which is a fourth century a Greek commentary, 33 sermons on the book of Romans that's preached in the fourth century. And uh, Chrysostom, you know, each of these things is a manuscript of Romans. Um, and what I'm working with is, is oftentimes uh, New Testament scholars, they're going to take uh, a printed edition of Chrysostom and they're going to say, you know, well, whatever this edition says, that's Chrysostom's text of Romans and it's a fourth century text of Romans. And kind of the work that I'm doing is, is trying to look at the methodology that's being used for that and look at all those 38 manuscripts of Chrysostom and all of the manuscripts of Chrysostom are a little different and the text of Romans that they have are sometimes substantially different. And what's happening is these manuscripts are being revised against New Testament manuscripts, not just once, but over and over again. My paper I'm going to give at CSNTM is going to be about how also at times New Testament manuscripts are being influenced by particular manuscripts of Chrysostom's sermons on Romans so you have a lot of complexities to sort through, um, and yet the big picture of all of this evidence is, like you said, we can look at a teeny scrap of papyri, and we can calculate 
how many pages would be necessary, you know, from one scrap, we can calculate so much because the text is macro level stability. It's not like we've got the papyri picture of Jesus and we have the majuscule picture of Jesus and we have the minuscule picture of Jesus and the patristic citation picture of Jesus. We've got a macro stability and we're really just trying because we love this text, because we think it matters so much, we're trying to get it as precise as possible. Um, but it's not like it's just like all over the map. It's like we're in, you know, we're in the inner ring. Right. And we, we're even in the bullseye and we're trying to narrow the bullseye down. Right. Which is something we'd say against textual skepticism that kind of has right. this idea that, well, it's all, it's all over the map. We have no idea what the macro picture is. And you're saying the evidence really doesn't support that conclusion either. Right. Exactly. And I think one really important thing is if you go back to the skeptics of like the 18th century, say, or the skeptics of even before that, the, the, the 17th century and the 18th century, you have some really radical skeptics that are, that are, that are raising a lot of things about the Bible. And one of the things that's been interesting is the, and we're going to talk about this later, but I might as well say it now, the range of skepticism allowable by the evidence has narrowed dramatically, whereas people would posit complete rewritings of the Bible um, or books, particular books of the Bible, and they'd have these really radical wholesale things that'd be widely accepted in, you know, skeptical, unbelieving scholarship. And then the, we get older and older manuscripts that just make those theories not only implausible, which they always were, but actually technically impossible. And it's not just that. Um, even John Calvin, in his, uh, uh, when he's commenting on Matthew's genealogy, he conjectures that a whole link in the genealogy is just missing. That, that's so far beyond anything that a text critic today would do uh, because of all the evidence that we have of Matthew's genealogy. So, so actually, on the textual absolutist side, they are critical of any effort, let alone money, from CSNTM, Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, to be spent on discovering new manuscripts, on digitizing manuscripts, on trying to incorporate any new discoveries uh, or old ones into you know, the way we do textual criticism, because they think that that leaves the Bible forever unsettled upon earth. And uh, they say that means that you have a never-finished, you know, uh, reconstructionist view of textual criticism. And actually what we're saying is that the more and more discoveries that we've made, um, the more we look into even the narrowest niches of the evidence, like, okay, we're going to look at one preacher's sermons. Uh, it's actually increasing our confidence. The, the amount of evidence is the means by which God has preserved his word. So you know, one thing that really helped me was, and some of you may have more specific knowledge here, you're New Testament textual critics, but one time I looked into Septuagint Jeremiah. And so this is the, you know, Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the, it, as I recall, chapters are rearranged, material is missing. I think it's substantially shorter, right? And it suddenly hit me, wow, okay, I, I've been wrapped up because of the King James only debate in the admittedly large number of variations among New Testament Greek manuscripts. But this is nothing. We're not missing massive sections. We don't have major rearrangements. I'm actually, I'm actually reading um, the Hebrew. So in my Bible reading for the Old Testament, I'm reading the Hebrew and the Septuagint, like reading the section in Hebrew and the section of the Septuagint. And Jeremiah is remarkable because I'm, I'm actually in Jeremiah right now. Um, and the sections are all rearranged. So it's like the oracles against the nations are at the end of Hebrew Jeremiah. And they're in the middle 
but it's not just that they've been moved to the middle. The order of the the order of the the order of the the oracles has been changed, and like you said, there's a little bit of text omitted, but then there's omissions all the way through. Um, you know, so it's it's like it's really pretty crazy. Um, but and I that's, think that's not the situation we have with right, the New exactly. Testament. We have nothing like that. There's nothing like the differences between you know the closest thing to that would be like the well, you know what? We could go into this on a pretty long rabbit trail, but I think we need to. Give, just give an overview of what we do with this material before we run out of time uh, for this episode. Um, so basically, the first step is to assemble the evidence, because as we've seen, we've got a lot of evidence in a lot of different places. And the, the second step is to assess it. So Elijah, what, what do we do to assemble the evidence? What, kind of, what, what, what are the steps that we might take? So we call it a, a critical apparatus is, is the notes at the bottom of the page. Right. It lists out which manuscripts have which readings. That's the the most basic uh, step to it, and and that has been done. That goes back to Stephanus. Um, but one one question you have to ask is what is the point of an apparatus, and what is the point of the editor? So that Nestle Aland doesn't tell you every single reading of every single manuscript. Right. Um, it's never intended to. Uh, the UBS tells you even fewer readings, right. but of more manuscripts, and so. Was Stephanus intending to give you every single reading? I mean, there was a study done recently of uh, Majuscule L, which is one that we're pretty, we're confident we know it was one that Stephanus used. Everything matches up. But uh, Stephanus's representation of L is not what L has. It, it leaves out plenty of readings. It gets some readings wrong. Um, so it was an imperfect knowledge. We want to have a better knowledge than that, but there's so many manuscripts. What do you do with all of those? So one thing to, that, that is done is to check manuscripts and test passages, mm. which is not a perfect method. But again, we have so many, we got to do something. Something's better than nothing. And checking at test passages can give us sort of a bird's eye view of, is this manuscript more like uh, mm-hmm. The Byzantine majority, is it more like Vaticanus, things like that. And typically when we have Byzantine manuscripts, like there's so many of them, we can have representative manuscripts of those. Uh, so a lot of those go unstudied. Um, they should be studied. I'm, I'm all for it. But again, we don't have enough people to do it. And manuscripts that are a bit more different than that get a closer look. And yeah, I think that's that's kind of like, you know, sort of the work that goes into it. You need to transcribe the way, it, you know, the way it's done today, especially as you want to transcribe the witness, you know, typically against a computerized text now. And right. so you'll make a copy of that that the computer can read. Right. And you'll collate it against other witnesses or against the base text. Yeah. Uh, and then you'll decide, you know, here are the places where those differ. Yeah. And there is there is so many there are so many manuscripts that are untranscribed. There are so many manuscripts that are uncollated. Uh, and right. so that's one of the things I'd like to see come out of this is some some people that, you know, rather than, you know, kind of turning over the same ground over and over again, um, mm-hmm. you know, go to the trouble of learning Greek, go to the trouble of, of learning to read a Greek manuscript, and you could actually transcribe some of these manuscripts. There's images, you know, CSNTM is making images available. And, and it's, it's not just that either. Um, it's that sometimes some of these transcriptions and collations are imperfect. Uh, one thing that you've got to consider is uh, where do the line breaks and page turns happen in a manuscript? Because you think about it, when you're writing with ink, uh, you get to the bottom of your page, you can't turn the page yet because the ink's not dry. You have to wait for the ink to dry to start writing the next page. Well, that's a wonderful opportunity to kind of forget where you were and make a mistake. 
but that doesn't come out in a lot of older collations and transcriptions. Uh, another example is one of the manuscripts I worked on is uh, Codex Rossinensis. It's a beautiful purple manuscript written in silver and gold from the 500s. And uh, when it was first published to the academic world, uh, some scholars went to the cathedral that has it in Italy and they saw it and they quickly made a quick and dirty transcription. And they admitted it. They, they said, you know, we don't have much time. We're going to do our best. We'll, get, we'll do the rest later. Well, when they came back later, the people in charge of the manuscript wouldn't let them see it. And so now they have to wrestle with this idea of if we publish this, it is full of mistakes, and we know it is. But also, there is no access of any kind to this manuscript if we don't publish it. Mm -hmm. So they published it full of mistakes, and that's the source of people's knowledge of that text for a lot of decades. Um, and I went through, and I transcribed all of Matthew twice in that thing, com and comparing it to them, they made a lot of mistakes. So... And it's not just that we need all the manuscripts transcribed, but sometimes we need to revisit. It. And that's and that's kind of that's one of the exciting things about it's what's taking place now is for the ECM. We'll talk about it later. Is whatever you think about the text, there are hundreds of manuscripts being fully transcribed, double checked, and uh, double transcribed. So one person's transcribing it, a second person is transcribing it, a third person is reconciling those transcriptions, uh, and then it's presenting the full evidence of that manuscript in the apparatus. Uh, so there is evidence being available today that has never been available before. Right. Um, and, a and depth thing, of evidence that was right. never available and before. And the thing that's so important with that is if, if you want to throw out a manuscript and say this is a bad manuscript, you need more than just a few readings. You need, you need to really to see the whole manuscript to see how is it a bad manuscript. Like how is it trustworthy and untrustworthy? And to do that, you, you've got to have enough of it to see patterns. And I think one of, you know, some of this talking about how, you know, people don't really, text critics today are very skeptical of like an Alexandrian text type and a Byzantine text type is because really for the first time, we've got transcriptions of a lot of manuscripts and it becomes mm -hmm. clear that language doesn't really fit the evidence um, mm -hmm. in a way that wasn't seen as clearly before. Right. And so, so we've got uh, this, this idea of assembling the evidence, but then we have to actually assess the evidence. And uh, what would you say the goal uh, what's the goal of doing text criticism? I mean, there's there's different goals. I think the fundamental goal is we want the text. And I mean, to me, I you know, I'm a Christian. I'm an evangelical Christian. I believe in Jesus. I put my faith in him. And I want to know what the original text is of the New Testament. And I, you know, there's scholarly debate about that. A lot of times it's called uh, the initial text or the Ausgangs text, the, the text that goes out. Um, I, honestly, I think that's overblown about how, um, if, if that's all that different from the original text, one of the uh, one of the editors of uh, the big editions out in an article had said, you know, for all practical purposes, the initial text is the original text. Like, you know, and there's there's the question of, I've heard it as an objection that. Oh, they people don't care about the original text anymore because it's all the initial text. Well, like, could it be that um, we all as scholars want to work together towards a specific goal, and rather than alienate certain individuals who wouldn't 
define it exactly as we do. We can kind of pick a definition that we all agree is workable. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But I think, you know, when, when you look at a text when you look at textual evidence, right? I think at least I'm trying to figure out what reading explains the other readings. Right. You know, that's basically what that's basically the question you're trying to answer when you're trying to determine what is the original text or the initial right. text as some would have it. You know, the, the the key question is you've got reading A, reading B, reading C, reading D, what reading makes sense of these readings? Um, right. Would you agree with that is the basic question that... Yeah, I think fundamentally that, that one is. And because at the end of the day, you know, all these copies were somebody's Bible. And I don't mean that in some postmodern sense in which every truth is true truth. Right. And what, like, no, like, um, you know, God can speak through imperfect translations. Right. He can speak through imperfect manuscripts, but he's still speaking through this manuscript. Right. And so... Uh, we do have to deal with the fact that sometimes people's Bibles had weird readings in them, and one of the questions that comes up is, how could this happen? Right. You know, how could how could it happen? And so then, knowing some things about the way that scribes work by looking at a lot of manuscripts, right. uh, there's some basic principles. And one of the one of the key things is that most, when you hear like there's 500,000 New Testament variants, the vast majority of those variants are selling errors or really obvious mistakes that would never make it into any editorial text. Like very few, very yeah. just a tiny percentage of those variants are even potentially, would anyone ever, even the scribe himself, should he go back and look at his work or her work, would they even consider that to be the original text? Yeah, there's a famous manuscript, and I can't remember the details on it. Bruce Metzger talks about it in his intro to text criticism. But you can tell that uh, the manuscript that this this particular one was copied from had the genealogy of Jesus, I think, in Luke in two columns, uh-huh. and that and that that happens. That's in some of the purple manuscripts that I dealt with. Uh, but this particular scribe, instead of copying down the one column oh, no. and into the other, he went across each time, oh. and so God ends up being the son of so and so. No, you know, uh, somebody else created the world and. Yeah, so I mean that's a that's a variant that radically changes the meaning of the text. It's also obvious. What but it's I, you know. obvious. No, I mean, and, and in fact, actually, I mean, I don't even know how many variants the way the variants are counted that would produce. But no one would ever, you know, it's you know, because some scribes are copying and they don't even know Greek. And in fact, actually, scribes that don't know Greek, yeah, oh yeah, well, that, they, that was... they they copy they, they they tend to make really really huge mistakes when they make a mistake. But because they're copying letter by letter, they tend to make fewer changes because scribes who know Greek really well are going to copy clause by clause or even mm-hmm. sentence by sentence. So they're going to make lots of little changes, but they're not going to fundamentally alter the sense of the text in a way that someone could make a real howler. Yeah, and my own research confirmed that I have two scribes, which I am convinced are a master and an apprentice. Um, and I argued that uh, the, uh, the master clearly is better trained. Clearly, the handwriting is much better. Um, the apprentice struggles a bit, but what you see is the apprentice makes a lot of dumb mistakes. Um, there's one instance where I'm pretty sure there was a mistake in the exemplar. The apprentice copies the mistake letter for letter and then fixes it, whereas the, the master copies it the right way. He just saw it and copies the right word and then thought, oh, there's a, there's a letter deleted, so I better delete one of these letters. It actually makes it worse. Uh, and so what I found was the 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 less skilled copyist of the two of them is, actually gives us the more reliable text. 
So, so you want to know kind of what scribes are doing. And there's some particular, particular ways that are sources of, of readings in the text. So you have readings um, that uh, are basically defects of memory. Uh, and then you have ones that basically have to do with the physical manuscript itself. So what would be some of the things that would be text slash memory, uh, either, you know, because when you're, when you're copying a text, you are reading it, and then you're remembering it, and then you're copying it, because you can't look at the text, uh, and you can't look at the manuscript in the same way. So one of the best ways to illustrate how copying errors uh, came up in manuscripts is to listen to how the Bible is read out loud at your church. Um, earlier in one of the earlier sessions, Tim, you flipped into the King James because that's what you've memorized. Um, that happens. It is. And so you can read, you can, if you want to do the nerdy stuff and go and look at the history, you can read, uh, in early monastic settings, um, people who wanted to become monks, they were in some cases required to memorize so many Psalms, a whole gospel, one of Paul's letters, well, you know, what would happen if you memorized all of the gospel of Mark? Because it's short, it's nice and easy to remember, but then maybe you got stuck copying Matthew. And there are a lot of places where Matthew and Mark really line up really closely. It would be really easy for Mark to slip in when you're not yep. on it and you end up just maybe changing a word accidentally. Not, not intentional at all, but that's what's in your head and that's what comes out. Well, I think this and, is, oh, sorry. I was going to say, and that can even sometimes gravitate to producing a longer or more orthodox reading. One example of that exact dynamic that I use for people sometimes is without opening a Bible, I'll open up Mark chapter 8, and I'll say, read for me or finish for me the confession of Peter. Peter says, Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter says, uh, Jesus says to Peter, who do people say that I am? What does Peter say in reply? You're copying out this copy of Mark. What are you going to write down? I, uh, thou, thou art, art the Christ, Christ, the son of the living God. Son of the living God. But that's not what Mark says in your King James Bible. That longer phrase, the son of the living God, is Matthew's form of the text. But if you're copying out Mark and you just immediately recall that to memory, and there are some scribes that did that, that took that longer reading from Matthew and just insert it into the text of Mark. Because it's so natural when you know the text so well and it's embedded yeah. in your yeah, literature. I have another it. illustration of this. So, you know, I grew up as, you know, I, I read through the King James, like the New Testament, hundreds of, you know, over a hundred times the Old Testament dozens and dozens of times. Like I was reading, at one point I read through the, the you know, the, the King James Bible seven times in one year. Mm, oh, wow. And, and the New Testament every, at Heartland one year, I read the New Testament every other year. Wow. So I spent a lot of time reading the King James. And so now for family devotions, we read the ESV at home, even though we still use the King James in church. And as I'm reading through the ESV with the text in front of me, I'm not even, you know, looking at a copy and then doing it. So I don't even have that mental gap. I will find, I will change it to the text of the King James at mm -hmm. points. I will read the King James, the King James word, even though I have the ESV in front of me, just because it's so familiar. Yeah. And scribes would do that too when they had so much, like you said, right. so much memorized. Without malice. Right. Right. And and one of the things, this is actually what my paper is on. I keep coming back to that because it's on my mind. But you know, you could have other sources of that too. Sermons. So sermons maybe that you heard or commentaries that you had read uh, where you were exposed to the text in some other form. Um, and that can influence you as you read it and you copy it. Um, so harmonization, that's your favorite source. Yeah, I think harmonization's behind every tree and under every rock. <laughs> so what, I, what I've seen a lot in my work on Chrysostom uh, is what's known as homeotelephton and homeoarchton, that I am very, uh, anytime there's an omission where, and that's basically homeotelephton is where a word, or sometimes it's, a, it's the ending of a word or even a couple of words, 
and then you've got a couple of words, and so you have a gap, so your eye skips from, so this could be an error in your memory, it could be an error in your reading where your eye skips, or you're looking at the text, right? And you copy to the end of that word, and then you look back at the text, and you see, oh, there's that same word again. But you don't realize that word's been repeated, and you've skipped a word, you've skipped a sentence, you've skipped a paragraph. And so this is one of the things that, like, Byzantine manuscripts, they don't all, like, all of them, because they're skilled scribes, because they're copying chunks of text at a time, they're particular, they have a particular tendency to do this. Uh, and so all these Byzantine manuscripts that supposedly, you know, they read the same in the test passages, you know, but if you actually collated the whole thing, you would find <laughs> there are sentences and paragraphs that are missing because of homeo telephton and homeo arcton, uh, just that is so prevalent in minuscule manuscripts just across the board. Uh, so those, that's a source. And then it, it, you also have um, uh, some damages in manuscripts themselves. Could you talk about some of those, those differences? Yes, I mean, sometimes pages are missing. Sometimes there's a scar in the animal that's skin is being used, and so they, you, know, you have to get across that. Uh, sometimes you could skip a line. I remember um, at my grandmother's funeral, somebody read the, the printed eulogy, and they skipped a line. Like, I had it, and they skipped a line, and my aunt went up afterwards and corrected them. Um, and it was great because it was like, yes, this, this happens. This really happens. Sometimes you have somebody that's there to correct it, and, but sometimes you don't. Well, it's one of the things I've seen in Chrysostom manuscripts is, you know, you have the, in a lot of them, you'll have the, um, some of them at least, you'll have the biblical text and it's a different format from the commentary text. Um, but what I've seen is some readings that could really only be explained by they skipped from one section of the biblical text to the next section of the biblical text. So they're skipping from, you know, they're looking for a particular, not the same word ending, but a particular format. And they, they, they went back to the wrong place on the page. So it's like they were from bold text to the next bold text. Even though there's nothing in common maybe in those words, it still is enough. So skipping a line, skipping a paragraph, you know, all of those, those sorts of things are all the sorts of things that can happen. Uh, and so if you can explain that, right? If you can show, you know, like, um, you know, I would, you know, so if, if a verse is skipped, but, you know, it ends with the same word, you know, or the same three words as the preceding verse, then, you know, people aren't going to say, well, we found a manuscript that has this verse skipped. We must, you know, it's an old manuscript. We must delete it. If it's explainable by homeotelepton, they're probably going to say, this is an easily explainable error. There's no reason, you know, there's no reason to accept this, right? Because we can explain the reading very simply by scribal things. We don't have to, it's easier to explain how this came to be omitted than how it came to be added. Can, can I sum up, and you correct me here, guys. Again, you're obviously the specialists on this topic, and I studied this at the doctoral level myself, and you're just exceeding my knowledge. This is not where I have spent a lot of my time. I'm so grateful for guys who do this. But when I was part of textual absolutism, and, and as I've tried to listen to them as charitably and accurately as I can over the years, it sure seems to me that every explanation I hear for any textual variation is some kind of malice. People are trying to change the text of Scripture. And the closest I've ever heard a textual absolutist come to acknowledging that there are essentially meaningless differences. The wise men came and found baby Jesus versus the wise men came and saw baby Jesus is one of them that actually exists between TR editions, by the way. Um, th I've heard them say, well, you know, Satan made sure to sprinkle a whole bunch of meaningless variation in there so he could cover up the stuff that was purposeful. <laughs> oh, my word. 
I think that um, I have to say, okay, before I look into the details, that's actually plausible. See, I, Satan could do something like that. But I hear you guys talking, giving, and you know, this is not new to me. This may be new to some of our listeners and viewers. I hear you guys talking about all kinds of, now that you think about it, also very plausible and even more plausible explanations of why all this happened. And let me offer a big macro scale justification for going with Elijah Hickson and Peter Montoro and the great majority of evangelical Christians who believe in the inerrancy of the Bible and can read Greek. Okay, it's this, it's the commonly stated fact that if you took even the very worst of all the readings available in the lectionaries, in the ostraca, which I'm not even sure we got around to mentioning, potsherds, you know, uh, um, uh, certainly um, anything Greek that we can find, even if you took the very worst and translated it into English and handed it to someone, they could get saved. The gospel would be there. Jesus' deity would be clear there. They could preach from it. I think I, the way I would be slightly more precise Please. That is to say you could take the very worst manuscript and translate it, and, and that would be the case. Because once you get into readings, we mentioned the one where God is the son of so-and-so. If you if you I got see. all the sure. worst readings sure. from every particular source, <laughs> you would have just complete nonsense. So, so let me use the Dan Wallace categories here then. He says if you actually look for meaningful and viable variants— I would okay. push back on that as push well. Push back against your boss, please. Yeah, well, I mean— This is going on, on the, the internet. The concept of a viable variant is some—you know, what is a viable variant? There are some variants um, that, to me, are not viable at all, but there are people who will defend them to the death. Um, I was reading an apologetics book recently, and he was talking about one particular variant, and he said, well, it's, you know, it's important, but obviously it's not viable. It's not viable. It's the text in this edition. Like— I think it's not only viable, but it's the original one. Uh, so that the whole concept of a viable variant really depends on who's saying what's yeah, viable think, and what's not. I think the big picture I want to leave people with is basically scribes are attempting to copy the text. So, you know, could there be some few places, we talked about this uh, a few days ago, could there be some few places where scribes intentionally change the text? Maybe. But the vast majority of times... They're just trying to copy the text. And when, when you can explain the changes based on what they were attempting to do, you don't, you know, it's like, if, you know, if you can, if you have a simple explanation, why invent a Rube Goldberg machine? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that furthermore hits a bunch of people along the way and, and accuses people of all kinds of things. Yeah. It's like, if, why? If right. they were trying yeah. to corrupt the text, they did a really terrible yeah, exactly. job of it. Well, you yeah. know, let me. As you talk about that and the the motivation behind alteration, tell me what you guys think of this thought that has come to me in the past. It seems to me, as we frame our broad three positions, confidence, absolutism, and skepticism, that skepticism, textual skeptics, want to look at variation as being intentional to create orthodoxy, whereas textual absolutists want to see variation as intentional towards heresy— but you're saying that the reality of the manuscripts are really that there's very little intentional alteration either way. Yeah. So do I would be very careful about ascribing intention to scribes. Yes. Because we just don't know what they were thinking. Well, I mean, one one example in one of my manuscripts, there's a double correction. So there's a, a correction and then it, it gets corrected. And it took me a long time to sort this out, but I think I figured it out. And it was in one of those parallel passages where Matthew and Mark had something very similar. 
um, Mark has a different a synonym, a word that means the same thing, but it's also it's a you know, it's a different word, but it's also grammatically a little different. And it's this particular scribe who has this tendency to harmonize to Mark. I mean, this harmonization to Mark happens over and over and over in this manuscript. And uh, what we see is the first reading is uh, he s slipped into Mark and wrote Mark's word, but also wrote Mark's grammatical ending, which doesn't fit in Matthew. And then realized that's not right. That doesn't fit. So he changed the ending to make it fit. He didn't change the word though. Just and that forever. just, that, and I don't understand that, but apparently to the scribe, that was sufficient enough. But then he changed his mind and scratched the whole thing out and got the, the bit in mind. And I think, I think going back to your question, and, I, and we need to wrap this episode up pretty soon, I know, but you know, you, you talked about the, the, the parallel between textual skeptics and textual absolutist. And I think one of the really interesting things is so someone like Bart Ehrman, you know, is going to say, well, look at this reading in this manuscript and look at this reading in this manuscript where it seems to Ehrman that, you know, the scribes changed a less orthodox reading to a more orthodox reading so that orthodoxy is the creation of the scribes. Um, and, you know, so he's basically picking individual readings from a bunch of different manuscripts to build this story of the creation of orthodoxy. And then a textual absolutist um, is doing the exact same thing, but saying, look at this change here and this meant, you know, in this modern translation and this change way over here. Um, but if you actually, and, and saying, you know, look at how these are attacking the deity of Christ. But if you actually read through the ESV, the whole way through, right. let's get to the point you are, you are asking about, or the NIV, or any translation, any non-modern evangelical any, English exactly, Bible translation, you know, then you're going to get the same picture of Jesus. If they were trying to undermine the deity of Jesus in the NIV, they did the worst job. They did the worst own job in all of human history. Like this is just right. a terrible job. And the same thing is true. Uh, Tommy Wasserman has wrote, wrote a paper on this, uh, responding to Bart Ehrman, showing that these manuscripts that supposedly have this orthodox corruption don't have any consistent pattern at all so is it possible something popped in their mind and, and they made this alteration? Yes. But did they say, here's the text of scripture. I'm going to change it. No, they did the worst stone job in history if that's what they were trying to do. They're both, the textual skeptics and the textual absolutists are making very similar claims that have very similar refutations. And basically you've got scribes who have all sorts of influences on them and make all sorts of mistakes, but they're copying the text and fundamentally they don't change it very much, and most of the changes they make, we can reverse because we know how scribes tend to operate, and that's what God also knew how scribes would tend to operate in his providence and transmitted his word to us in a way that scribes wouldn't be able to destroy it. So some monk sitting, you know, on Mount Athos doesn't have the power to destroy God's word because, you know, he heard, you know, a sermon in the liturgy, and that influenced his copying of the text, and now God's word is forever destroyed. God's not that fragile. Right, Bible's right. not that fragile, and our faith shouldn't be that fragile. Amen. This plane has just run out of fuel, and I'm going to take it in for a crash landing with the quote from G.K. Chesterton. I'm slightly amending this. You can read the whole thing on my blog. The conspiracy theorist generally sees too much cause in everything. He would read Amen. a conspiratorial significance into empty activities. He would think that the lopping of the grass by a man walking with a cane was an attack on private property. 
He would think that the kicking of the heels by that same stranger across the street was a signal to an accomplice. If the conspiracy theorist could for an instant become careless, he would become sane. Everyone who has had the misfortune to talk with people in the heart or on the edge of a conspiracy theory knows that their most sinister quality is a horrible clarity, clarity of detail, a connecting of one thing with another in a map more elaborate than a maze. If you argue with a conspiracy theorist, it's extremely probable that you will get the worst of it. For in many ways, his mind moves all the quicker for not being delayed by the things that go with good judgment. He, he is not hampered by a sense of humor or by charity or by the dumb certainties of experience that people skip a line. I just added that, by the way. He is the more logical for losing certain sane affections. The conspiracy theorist is not the man who has lost his reason. He is the man who has lost everything except his reason. Plane landed. We'll go to the next session in a bit where we talk about Peter real quick. The history and trajectory of textual confidence. So how this, this type of working with manuscripts has continued from the age of the manuscripts into the age of Erasmus and all the way down to the present. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to the Textual Confidence Collective. You can find this podcast on Dr. Mark Ward's YouTube channel and anywhere else you find audio podcasts. Be sure to visit our website, www.textualconfidence.com. <laughs>